A date which will live in infamy. Both of those projects, initiatives, got off the ground because of the Guerrero. The 11 Olympic team members slain in West Germany. The Olympic Games. So geheimt waren die Brüder in Amerika. Von Kauten Schabes hat es getan. Out of the 24 who were killed were Americans who had come to learn in Kevin. I say one million Jewish children who were made to be cut in Whoever heard such beautiful words, it is never too little. It is never too late, and it is never enough. Jewish History Soundbites, bringing alive the world of our glorious past. Here is our host, live from Jerusalem, Jewish historian and tour guide. Welcome, Yehuda everyone, Geber. to Jewish History Soundbites. This is Yehuda Geber with another episode of Jewish History Soundbites, and this episode on the early, uh, early modern Jewish music has been generously sponsored by the Shapiro family of Los Angeles. So thank you for that sponsorship. And you can be in touch with me about further sponsorships. The recent episode that we had on the DP camps uh, generated a lot of uh, responses, a lot of feedback. So I'm just going to read a couple of share, a couple of letters from our a great community of Jewish history soundbites, uh, educated and wise and dedicated listeners. So here's one. Uh, Any episode that highlights how the survivors rebuilt touches my heart. Thank you for highlighting how how low they felt and how they rebuilt nonetheless. I love the Rav Lepiansky story. I hope the young generation is listening. I think people forget how much the survivors specifically and the Jewish world in general was in a state of complete despair during the immediate aftermath of the war. How they had the strength to pick up and rebuild so soon and so quickly is beyond astonishing. I think to a degree that we are still living through this chapter of history and therefore do not fully grasp what we have lived through in our in our and our parents' lifetime. When the final history book is written, I think the chapter of the last 75 years will be highlighted as one of the greatest miracles in our long and storied history. And it is these survivors who helped write that chapter almost single-handedly. P.S. An episode or episodes on the Kloisenberger Rebbe is long overdue. Not only was he a fascinating individual with all he accomplished, but his life story is a prism into so many chapters, pre-war Hungary, the war itself, the DP camps, post-war America and Israel. What a beautiful letter. So keep them coming. Here's another one. Um, the Yeshiva... From the, the, that the Kleisenberger Rebbe started, Sheiris Hapleta, started in Feldafing and only later moved to Ferenveld. And there he met General Eisen, in Feldafing, he met General Eisenhower Anyam Kipper. The picture was released recently. And he made a great impression on the general so, that much, so much that he later had a plane go special to Italy to bring a lulav and estrig for him uh, for the coming sukkahs. Uh, the Kleisenberger Rebbe gave Eisenhower a blessing that he should one day become a leader or the president, 
And you can read this story in full detail in the biography on the Kloisenberger Rebbe, Lapid Ho'esh. At the same occasion, he seemed to have had an interaction with General Patton as well. Okay, so that's a nice story. I have to check it out. So hopefully when we do our episode on the Kloisenberger Rebbe, we'll be able to discuss all these uh, details. Um, here's another one, a third letter. There, the, my uncle had a sitter that was printed in the DP camps when he began his business career as a DP in the DP camp as a DP camp black marketeer. He loaded up trucks with coffee and cocoa and earned, earned enough to arrive in the United States and start a successful and legal business there. At one time, he nearly entered into a partnership with Pearl, a survivor who had an uncanny, uncanny ability to create flavors and made a fortune inventing Mountain Dew, and some others who became business leaders in the U.S. The partnership never got off the ground. Um, it was in a DP camp near Munich. Unbelievable. Okay, great stuff, the DP camps. So here we go. We're going to go along from there to the origins and the early years of modern Jewish music, right? Um, uh, we're gonna, we're gonna, we're gonna try to hear the story. Um, you know, the truth is that A.B. Rottenberg already told the whole story. And Journeys Three um, is a fantastic song. All of his songs are fantastic. But um, yes, we've got the music. Literally traces the whole history of, or most of the history of modern Jewish music, in a very concise and fun way. So I guess, I guess that song is kind of the inspiration for this episode. Also, you know, the um, there's a column in in the uh, Mishpacha magazine. Um, besides, for further record, there's lots of other great stuff there, and and there's one of the Goldings. I forgot his first name. Um, the this the Ding of Suki and Ding um, has this amazing music history column every once in a while that uh, traces also through the history of which I enjoy a lot the uh, history of of the early Jewish music, he recently had a trivia um, question, 25 questions of, 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 of trivia of, of early uh, Jewish music. I got one question correct out of 25. I actually did the whole list, and I got one question correct. And I got, it was the, the name of the lawyer from Manhattan on the Atheist Convention, so I knew that it was Peter, and he was the lawyer from Manhattan. So if I only got one question right on that trivia, so I'm not even really qualified to even do this episode, but that's not going to stop me. I'm going to do it anyway. I want to say another thing to put things into perspective. One of my uh, rabbeim in the Mir Shiva, I was once talking to him and, and uh, the topic of, of Shlema Kaobach and, and all the controversy. And, you know, there are elements who don't like to sing his music because he left Lakewood and Rabaran Cutler and, and, and then he and then he left the Lubavitcher Rebbe and he went out on his own. And, and then others don't like singing his music because of allegations made after his passing about things that he did during his life. And, and there's all types of issues that people have with him and his music. And, um, and this, this Rebbe of mine in the mirror, he gave me some perspective. He said, uh, he said, let me tell you something. Before Karl Bach, we, listen to Simon and Garfunkel, right? Uh, Hear my words that I might teach you. That's, uh, that's you know, so they, he, was, he was listening to their words. Now, they were Jewish too, so they're, they're Jews making music, but I don't know if it's Jewish music. 
Jews from New York. You can't get more Jewish than that. They're from Queens, if I'm not mistaken. Um, and uh, but but then but then Karlbach came along, and then you had modern Jewish music that that we in the yeshivas were able to listen to. So it definitely opened up a new world, and you can't take that credit uh, away from him. So it's uh, you know puts things into into proper historical uh, perspective. So I just want to emphasize that this there is no way to cover this uh, vast topic in one episode. Um, so there's going to be several. I imagine it'll be two, three, four. So be in touch with me about sponsorships if you want to sponsor a further episode. Hopefully we'll get to the 60s if we get lucky on this first one, maybe even the 70s. Uh, if we get to Diaspora Yeshiva Band, then that will be a big uh, accomplishment. But let's let's go for it. Let's see how far we get. So the first thing we have to understand is the um, what's modern about modern Jewish music and, and, what's, and what's Jewish about modern Jewish music. So there's different stages uh, um, we go through. There's, there's the old Nigunim, the Hasidic songs um, for, that we had for hundreds of years in the different Hasidic courts. There's, by the way, there's secular Jewish music, which is in many ways Jewish. Um, especially in Israel, there's all types of Jewish music that's not necessarily Hasidic and not necessarily religious. But it's Jewish. It's Jewish music in different ways, but also in the United States um, and also in Europe before the war. Um, there's there is the songs of the of the uh, of the Zionist youth groups before the war it was definitely Jewish music. It's different. It's in a different way. And then the first, the first and second and third aliyahs when they what they sang on the kibbutzim was also Jewish music. And many of them are actually taken from Hasidic music, by the way. Many of them were straight up knockoffs of. Uh, of Hasidic music that many of these uh, chalutzim, these pioneers, had grown up in Hasidic homes and communities, and then they brought it and they uh, revised it uh, and they sang new songs with new words on the kibbutz two generations later. So there's so how does this develop in the 20th century till we get to the stage of of um, of uh, from the old-fashioned Hasidic music to modern religious uh, Jewish music? So the one who who's the father of that revolution is Shlomo Karlbach, obviously. Now, we did speak about, you know, we have several episodes that we touched on Jewish music, by the way. We had a mini-series on Shlomo Karlbach, so you should probably, you probably want to listen to that. So I spoke about that a long, long time ago, so uh, you can check out the Karlbach episodes. I touched on Chazanus, which cantorial Jewish music is a major component of of, uh, the development of modern Jewish music as well. Um, so you're going to check out that episode as well. Um, recently, we had um, the Majitz Hasidic dynasty. So we touched on Majitz music and Ben-Sian Schenker and his contribution. So you want to check out that episode as well. But either way, Kaubach uh, changed changed Jewish music forever. And, and um, it's comparable, if you want to bring a comparison from the sports world, the reason that people like Babe Ruth or Muhammad Ali or Wayne Gretzky, or Michael Jordan, or if you want to make it even more contemporary, someone like Michael Phelps, each one in their sport, it wasn't just that they were the most talented in the history of the sport, it was that they completely changed the rules of the game. They completely transformed it. And that's why I would not include in that list Jim Thorpe, who might have been the most talented athlete of the 20th century, but he didn't transform any specific sport. Um you ever have you ever have millennials at the Shabbos table who 
who tend to think this mistaken notion that LeBron James is even comparable to Michael Jordan, it's because they don't understand the transformative effect and impact that, that you can have on the game. And it's not just about talent. That's why they're wrong. You can't confuse talent with changing the game, changing the playing field, raising it to the next level. And that's the same thing with Jewish music. Um, what, uh, what Karl Bach did was that he made changes uh, along, along the way. He completely uh, modernized it and, 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 and a whole genre, a whole, a whole world emerged from that. And I'll give you an example of, of another uh, contribution much later on. We'll get, hopefully we'll get to it, not in this episode, but in, when we get to the 1980s. Um, Yassi Piamenta, um, he, you know, was also very talented and had great music, but he popularized and made much more accepted the electric guitar in modern Jewish music. It was used before, it was used by the diaspora, it was used by others, but, um, but he popularized it and, and its use and, 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 and how to use it in, in Jewish music and how to use it in Hasidic songs. So that's, that's a contribution, that's a historical contribution in the development along the way of, of Jewish music. So we're going to divide it into time periods to give it some uh, historical perspective. There's pre-war, the immediate post-war, then, the, then the, uh, the real explosion in the 1960s with Karl Bach and others, and then the diversification in the 1970s and 80s. So we'll start from stage one, the transition from classic Hasidic music to Jewish music. And it comes about, first we have the cantorial, like I mentioned in the Chazanis episode, that you'll check out. We had Moshe Eicher and Yasser Rosenblatt and Zulun Kvartin and Moshe Kasavitsky, um, and uh, and all those, and 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 then and and that's cantorial. But then we have Hasidic music. So here I'm going to talk about uh, Yankel Talmud. Yankel Talmud was the um, the bri- a certain way a bridge from the old world to the new world. He was born in Warsaw in 1885 to a Ger Hasidic family, and he joins the choir, um, the Kapelia in Ger, when the Svasemis is still alive. So you're talking about it's literally a different world, different century. And he's appointed eventually to head the Kapelia, the, the choir, the adult choir in, in, uh, in Ger. He was close with the Rebbe the Imre Emes, and he was an activist as well. He was involved in the Agudas Yisrael, he moves with his family to Palestine in 1933, and he becomes a mashgiach kashrus in the Asaf Harofe hospital there in Tel Aviv. When the Ger Rebbe escapes Europe at the war's outset, he sends for Yankel Talmud, who lived in Tel Aviv, he stayed the entire time in Tel Aviv, and he asks him to continue composing for Ger, because they're rebuilding the Hasidus at this point. He eventually composes over a thousand songs in his lifetime, some of which have become classics. He has his famous Shir Hamalis March. In general, Ger likes marches. It's a tradition that they retained from Kutsk. The Kutsker very much enjoyed marches. Rabbi Yehuda Meir Abramovitz, who was a Ger Hasid and the Aguda leader, a legendary Aguda leader, he told uh, Yankel Talmud that Ger Hasidim in Poland went to their deaths during the Holocaust with his songs on their lips. And he got very emotional, and he said that this is my comfort in my sorrow, after all of Polish Jewry was wiped out. Um, so he continues to compose for Ger. He served as the Chazan by the Beis Yisrael, the Ger Rebbe. He used to come to Yerushalayim for Yantif and sometimes for Shabbos. He did not know how to read music, and he never studied music. 
Yet when he passed away in 1965, he had a huge Leviah in Tel Aviv, pop, very popular. And, and it continues through his, someone who he mentored as a child, David Werdiger, David Werdiger, who grew up in Krakow. At the age of 12, he was accepted by Uncle Talmud into the Ger Kapelia in pre-war Poland. And he sang in Ger as a young child for the Imrayamas and for tens of thousands of Ger Hasidim in the, those uh, glory days uh, in the pre-war. And then he survives the war. He's in Plashov, Plashov in the concentration camp outside of Krakow where he uh, famously saved his own life by singing Kel Mule, uh to Eamon Goth, the infamous uh, commandant of of the Pashov uh, concentration camp, a terrible, evil person. Um, I heard him, I heard uh, uh, David uh, Werdiger sing that same Kel Mule at the 10th CM Ashas at Madison Square Garden. See, David Werdiger gets married after the war, and he becomes a chazan and a pioneer of recording Hasidic music. He um, he recorded, uh, first he becomes a chazan in the Lower East Side, and then Brooklyn, and New Lots, and East Flatbush, and then he starts recording the various nigunim on records. Anyone remember, who remembers records? I remember. I remember that when I was a little child, we still had a couple of records. Um, he uh, so he 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 records the what what were the nigunim of the old Hasidic courts of his day and of the pre-war, and they weren't recorded because now now he wanted to go ahead and, and uh, immortalize those songs. So first he collaborated with his mentor Yankel Talmud and recorded several albums of Gera songs, and then he did Melitz which was a Galicia Hasidus uh, related to both Rupshitz and Sans. So he recorded their songs, and Skulen, Babov, Bayan, Radomsk, and he went on and on. Um, the next one we have is, of course, Majitz with Bitsin Shanker. I spoke about him a little bit in the Budgets episode. He's someone who grew up in the United States, in Williamsburg, and from a pa- family of Polish Hasidim. He gets close with Reb Shol Taub, the Imre Shol, the Majat Sarebbe, following his escape from Europe at the beginning of the war. And he, and he, Benzin Schenker goes to Tayyar Vadas. He was friends with Shlomo Karlbach. And he devotes his life to Majits and his own songs, his own classics. Some of his songs are so classic that it's hard to believe that they were composed so recently. His Aishas Chayil, which everyone in the world sings, and he himself would very often leave Shul late. He would stay late uh, Friday night in Flatbush where, and to be able to hear, uh, get gratification out of the homes uh, that he would pass by. He would hear them singing his Aishas Chayel. That's how, you know, the satisfaction that, 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 that the Jewish people were singing his song, his Laisei Vaishi, Yasis Alayich is saying at every uh, um, wedding and Sheva Brachis and whatever. Um, I remember when I was a child going to hear him. Um, he was one of the, he's literally one of the biggest uh, pioneers of, of modern Jewish music, despite the, his style was very Hasidic, very old-fashioned, but it influenced everyone. It influenced everyone from Karlbach to MBD, Mordechai ben David, who's obviously the son of who I just mentioned before, David Werdiger, and beyond. He influenced the klezmer world and others beyond, beyond the Hasidic world. Um, his, his, um, the, his Shoshanis Yaakov, by the way, is one of the greatest songs ever composed, and that is a subjective opinion. It's not a historical fact, but at least I'm taking, I'm stating opinions on that and not on any political uh, um, matters. 
Um, of course, you have Chabad also. Today, you have people like Yair Kalev and, and Avram Fried and others who are popularizing the old Chabad songs. But in the early days, the, the Lubavitcher Rebbe and his Hasidim were disseminating the old Chabad classics to a new generation, recording the old Chabad classics to a new generation. And they are some of the greatest and timeless songs as well. So Chabad's contribution to Jewish music is also cannot be underestimated. And it's not just through their own songs. It goes in many other ways as well. Perhaps we'll talk about it on a later episode. Um, the next one we have is another a bridge from the pre-war to the post-war, Yom Tov Erlich, who was a Staliner chassid. And his father was a chazan in the Karlin, Karlin Stalin Chatzar in that court, and he escapes at the beginning of the war to Smarkand in Uzbekistan, where he survives the war. He moves to the United States after the war, continues to be a Staliner chassid, and he composes and records Yiddish songs, uh, his own compositions, his own lyrics, lots of nostalgia to the shtetl, the simple way of life. He kind of romanticizes it. He describes in his songs the Uzbekistan that he knew during the war. He describes Williamsburg in the 1950s. Uh, some of his stuff has been translated or re-recorded recently in recent years. He moved to Israel in the end of his life. Sometimes actually we go to his kever in Harazesim, and so we pass by it. Supposedly, the Satmarov, Rabbi Eilish Teitelbaum, loved his songs. Allegedly, I can't verify that. So the question is, we want to ask at this point is, what, what makes something um, modern Jewish music and what makes it Jewish? Um, in fact, in Israel, this music is referred to as Hasidic music, um, not Jewish music per se. Um, and I'll give you a couple of examples where where it's debatable, uh, you know, what, what would it be called? Um, you have klezmer music. Dave Taras. Dave Taras uh, served in the Tsar's army, grew up in the Ukraine, and he moves to New York after World War I. He played klezmer for the old Yiddish theater in the 1920s, and he's considered the greatest klezmer player of the 20th century. A different style of music, like a Jewish jazz kind of. And he was the only one still playing klezmer music in the 1950s and 60s when everyone said klezmer's dead. And he was still around in the 1970s when all of a sudden klezmer experienced a revival and he mentors the new klezmer musicians of the next generation, people like Andy Statman. Andy Statman is a religious Jew. He looks very religious. He plays klezmer, which is kind of Jewish music, so is... Is that Jewish? Is that part of the Jewish renaissance, the Jewish music? I'm not sure. Can I bring you even another example? What about Yitzhak? Yitzhak Perlman, one of the greatest violinists in the world. He was born to a Polish-Jewish family in Tel Aviv, and he plays klezmer, he plays all kinds of styles. He collaborated in recent years with Helfgott and, and others in quote-unquote mainstream Jewish music. Um, so these are people who, they're not Bob Dylan, they're not Simon and Garfunkel, who are, who are Jews, but they, and they made music, but they're not Jewish music by any definition of the term. So these people are kind of in between. In fact, uh, Perlman played the violin for the musical score on Schindler's List. Um, the score won an Oscar, which is not surprising because basically Schindler's List won an Oscar in every category. Uh, I don't know if Perlman himself won it. He 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 played the violin. He didn't compose the score. You have to ask at the at the academy how that works. But that brings us to the 1960s when Jewish music goes into its modern stage. Shlomo Karlbach and the beginning of the Jewish music revolution. Karlbach starts in the 1950s. 
But he moves it to the next level when Bob Dylan got him to the Berkeley Folk Festival in 1966, and that's when his career really takes off. And at that time, at that time, around that time, you have um, Baruch Chait and the Rabbi's Sons, and that again is the next revolution in Jewish music. Later, it's called Salonika. Also, it starts in 1967 together with Label Sharfman, Itzik Weinberger. Michael Zeitlin, the first three were sons of rabbis, which is, that's where the title comes from, the rabbi's sons. In fact, Reb Henech Leibowitz, where Baruch Chait was studying at the time in Chavetz Chaim, he asked Baruch Chait to compose music to combat that music, and he meant the Beatles, um, which was becoming too popular, and the yeshiva guys were getting too into it, and he wanted them to have a Jewish uh, and a Jewish feel and a Jewish style music that would be a... a uh, to counteract the influence that the Beatles were having on the American youth at the time, the Jewish American youth at the time, and Baruch Chait complied, and he collaborates, and they form this group with, he's from Chavetz Chaim, the other three were in YU, um, and uh, and their big break was at a concert in Central Park a few months later at a rally celebrating the Israeli victory of the Six-Day War. Later on, uh, Baruch Chait went on to Kol Salonika, and he's still composing today. I, I meet him. I know, I know him. I've met him many times. Also, he brings his yeshiva marava. We meet him in Poland, and and uh, you know, and the, he's you have them doing their kumzitzes there. Also, in fact, his son uh, composed a, a song on one of my trips. Brought him to the Chassam Seifer, and it's been uh, recorded also as well. I think it's available online. Um, Baruch Chait has so many classics. It's too many to even enumerate. He's definitely one of the most important composers and architects of modern Jewish music. So we only got halfway through the 1960s. We didn't get to Archadash. Um, we have to get to that Shmuel Brazil and Country Yassi, the others, um, with you know the legendary Bilvavi and Schmelkesnig. And then we have the Pirche and Jep albums. They start in 1966. They're there right in the beginning. Uh, classics like, you know, Someday We'll All Be Together, I remember is like the most famous from that era. But um, they influenced the the Jewish camp world up in the Catskills. They're the bridge between, the Pirche and Jep uh, albums are the bridge between the Agudas Yisrael, the Hamish Brooklyn world, and the wider Jewish community. Um, and they, they, they have a tremendous influence on Jewish life, but also on the Jewish music world, which these these were initially used as fundraisers for the uh, educational activities of JEP, and but they produced such uh, amazing Jewish music. Then you had, of course, the London School of Jewish Song, Yigal Salik. They started in 1970, um, and they even had a political song. He had the Soviet Union. They had one or two songs, but um, but their their influence on uh, on Jewish music as well, and um, and, uh, and it goes on and on. We'll have to get to uh, more of the 1960s and then move into the 1970s on part two, which will hopefully be very soon. Be in touch with me about sponsorships for that. And of course, part three as well. This is Yehuda Geber with Jewish History Soundbites. You can reach me at Yehuda at YehudaGeber.com for questions, comments, sources, sponsorships, uh, trips, virtual tours, lectures, and you can subscribe to Jewish History Soundbites on Podbean or your favorite podcast platform. Follow us on Twitter at Soundbites, and I hope you enjoyed.